The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Ellen Beers. She's a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the assessment and treatment of individuals with personality disorders, substance abuse issues, and emotional regulation problems. She's the author of Recovering from Narcissistic Mothers, a Daughter's Workbook. Ellen has spent over 15 years helping clients identify and recover from emotional abuse and manipulation. Today's episode focuses on three topics related to narcissistic abuse. Managing emotional dysregulation, dealing with complex relational trauma, and overcoming the addictive component of trauma bonds. We will provide clear steps and strategies for each. Let's get started. Hi Ellen, thank you for joining me today. It's nice to have you in this podcast episode. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to share and offer some of the insights I have about narcissistic abuse. That's great to hear. So let's get started then right away. And the first question that we have today is, what are the steps a person who has experienced narcissistic abuse can follow to overcome emotional dysregulation? And if you can uh, shortly also explain what is emotional dysregulation? Okay, so emotional dysregulation is sort of a fallout of narcissistic abuse. And uh, although it has a wider definition when it comes to narcissistic abuse, essentially what happens is um, the emotional dysregulation creates this sense of unreality or confusion um, that the the victim or the, the person who's experienced narcissistic abuse um, experiences. And so what happens is they essentially uh, misunderstand they have a mindset of not trusting their own perception in the situation with the narcissist. So this is also called something, uh, it's called cognitive dissonance. And that's essentially when a person holds two conflicting uh, beliefs about a certain situation. So for example, um, if I were to make spaghetti one night and my narcissistic abuser says, um, I didn't ask you to make spaghetti, but I know that I, I was asked to make spaghetti. And so I'm conflicted between did I hear him say or her say make spaghetti? Or is it really that that was never asked? So I start getting confused. And this causes a great deal of anxiety. Um, and this confusion and the desire to, to uh, not feel so overwhelmed and unbalanced, because that's essentially what victims of narcissistic abuse feel like they're overwhelmed with perception issues and overwhelmed with their emotions, you know, sort of um, going back and forth between can I trust myself? Um, I can't trust myself. I, yes, I can trust myself. I can't trust myself. Um, and so it's a it's sort of like a constant heightened state of anxiety when people are in relationships like this. And Oftentimes you might hear someone say, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I don't know what, um, you know, what I'm going to walk into when I walk into my home or my workplace or my um, event that I'm going to with this person. So um, essentially this 
creates the person focusing constantly on this unbalanced sense of emotional dysregulation, um, which is, of course, exhausting over a long period of time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, some of the signs that, okay, someone can be like, okay, I probably am dealing with emotional dysregulation. So kind of constant almost like a battle inside your head like you like you said going back and forth and probably anxiety and is it also like could you say like mood swings or like you just can't it's it feels almost like whatever emotions you have or especially negative ones it's like you can't control them and correct so it, it feels like you don't have any control over how your responses are going to be to anybody in particular so you might be Um, excessively irritable, you might be agitated. Um, I've heard a lot of people uh, discuss feeling like no sense of joy anymore. Um, obviously, anxiety, confusion, fear, um, you know, unbalanced, feeling unbalanced, like I don't know how I'm going to respond in a situation that even not necessarily with the abuser, but also with, you know, the person at the grocery store or the person they're working with, because you're in this state of not being able to trust your perception of what other people are saying to you or how they're acting towards you. Um, because you you've consistently been in this situation with someone who supposedly cares about you, who creates this environment that's unsafe. And so they, what happens with uh, people that have experienced this is they sort of translate that in all other relationships. And so they're agitated or irritable or short or um, unhappy or, you know, distracted. Um, and so it's hard to have any kind of meaningful relationships with someone, even if it's not the person who's, narciss who's the narcissist, um, because they're constantly trying to regulate their sense of, uh, you know, how they feel, because it's always, it's always on edge. And Another additional thing with the emotional dysregulation is when someone is in that environment with a the narcissist, their nervous system is escalated because, you know, they're in a fight flight response. Um, and so when your nervous system is escalated, uh, it's very difficult to regulate that when you're in a state of constant, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Um, what's this person going to say to me today? Do I need to be on guard? Um, Am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to get yelled at? Am I going to be asked to uh, explain something that the person is not going <laughs> to respond favorably to? So it's it's sort of like this heightened sense of um, uh, emotion emotions that are not good emotions. It's agitation. And so it's very difficult to pull that down when you're in that state. It's kind of like being in a constant state of somebody um, harming you at any second. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. Then, what would you say that now that we know what it is, and what mm -hmm. kind, kind of are the signs? What would you if you have a client and you notice that what do you kind of say to them first that hey, focus on this first, if you want to overcome the emotional dysregulation? So the very first thing that I always talk about with clients, um, I assess it, but I also talk about it with them is Um, for them to to sort of look inside themselves and get a better understanding of their emotions. Because when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, the whole um, experience is focused on them and trying to kind of regulate their emotions because you're you're wanting to take care of their emotions and all that sort of stuff. 
So we forget that, hold on, I've got my own emotions. I've got to learn how to identify what those are. Now, I'll, I'll caveat that with most people that I have worked with have experienced this emotional dysregulation and issues like this in their family of origin. This is not something that people just walk into with a narcissist and like, what? I, I came from this really functional family and then all of a sudden I found this narcissist. Usually that's not the case. So when, uh, when I ask them about their emotions, they a lot of times have a difficult time identifying their emotions. What are you actually feeling? Um, in order to regulate your emotions, you have to identify what they are. So I'll, I'll work with uh, someone on that. So one of the easiest ways to do that for someone who is not sitting in a therapist's office is to find on the internet, or you might even have it in a book that you own, uh, a list of emotions. Um, there's some good ones out on the internet that have a picture of faces, and then it says what the emotion is underneath it. And it's a good idea to go and look at that and sort of think about, okay, Here's what happiness looks like. Here's what excitement looks like. Here's what embarrassment looks like. So um, I want them to start identifying, you know, what are these emotions that they're feeling? But when you're in a relationship with someone who's narcissistic, all of your emotions have been discounted or invalidated. And so the importance of identifying these emotions and then validating your own emotions, in other words, your emotions are always okay, no matter what you're feeling. So if you're sad, that's okay. If you're angry, that's okay. If you're excited, that's okay. So essentially what I would want people to do is to start validating that all of their emotions that they're actually feeling are fine. They're in a relationship where someone's telling them their emotions are not fine. In fact, don't have any emotions. And if you do have emotions, you're selfish, there's something wrong with you, you're crazy, you're too sensitive, you know, those kinds of things. So an individual needs to um, work on accepting that all emotions are always valid, no matter what they are. Now, behaviors aren't always, <laughs> but emotions are. And so when we start looking at, okay, if I'm fearful or sad or scared, I'm going to validate that, that that's okay for me to feel that way. And then I'm going to decide what I'm going to do based on that emotion. So that's, that, that's one of the big ones is to learn how to validate your own emotions. Now, a, a tool that people can use to really practice this is mindfulness. And mindfulness is all over the internet. Um, it's a skill that you can learn very easily. You can go to YouTube or, you know, Google mindfulness, and they've got a lot of um, things that you can do to practice mindfulness. But essentially, mindfulness is learning how to focus essentially on yourself and on what's going on right in front of you in this moment in a non-judgmental way. And so, you know, without, that could be a whole different podcast about mindfulness, but essentially it is something that it's very easy to practice. You do not need a therapist for it. You can go online and there's all kinds of mindfulness. Uh, uh, there's mindfulness apps, there's YouTube videos, there's all kinds of stuff out there to practice it. And, it. and it allows someone to sort of get in touch with their own emotions and then learn how to regulate uh, how they're feeling based on the skills and the tools that you learn in mindfulness, which is essentially just learning how to focus in the moment without judgment. Mm, okay. 
this made me think that if we have been in narcissistic relationships and when we do okay we learn how to identify our emotions and then we go to the next step which is they're like kind of uh, validating those emotions to us sometimes i feel like if i uh, like let's say you say to yourself okay i'm feeling i don't know angry about this and then all of a sudden that uh, kind of you hear the narcissistic person's voice that well you are being dramatic and it's like it kind of it can interfere with your process of trying to learn that is it just that you have to just be like okay go away or like what tips you have like you just keep practicing it and over time it works or well yes so uh, one something that i tell clients all the time is that you didn't get into a situation where you believed the things the narcissist said overnight you know the you get into a relationship with someone where you're hearing things over and over and over and over and over so when we practice mindfulness validate emotions change our self-talk essentially you have to give yourself a little bit of grace that that's going to take a little bit of time in order to relearn what is should be positive feedback and not negative feedback because again it didn't take it wasn't didn't happen overnight you know people are born feeling very valuable and validated and affirmed because you know when you're a baby you're crying and your diapers are changed and you get fed and all that it's only when environmental things happen that we change that inner dialogue so a narcissist is essentially doing that because they're saying over and over you're crazy you're i didn't say that you're too sensitive what's wrong with you you know all of those things and so coming back being less outer focused on what the narcissist is doing and working on your inner self and your inner self talk and i always tell people it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing you do not have to believe the positive things that you're going to say to yourself or validating your positive emotions or any of your emotions um you just have to say it to believe it So you're not believing it and then you say it you say these things and then over time you start to believe them and this works uh it's very difficult when you're still in the relationship with the narcissist to do this but it's not impossible because if your focus is on i want to really figure out what's best for me and a lot of times people that are coming to me they're not coming into the office saying i i need to get out of this relationship with the narcissist they're coming in and asking how can i manage within this relationship with the narcissist it's much more difficult but it's not impossible but you have to work at it on a consistent basis in order to be able to change that inner dialogue over time and again you don't have to believe these positive things you're saying the validation of your emotions the affirmation of your emotions in order to do it you just have to do it and then eventually you'll believe it In my personal journey of recovery from narcissistic abuse, especially dealing with the emotional dysregulation, I found that guided visualizations incredibly helpful. So I'd like to share with you one of my favorite visualization exercises that has significantly assisted me in managing my emotions. So now I'm going to guide you through one of one of these exercises. So if you are driving or in the middle of something where you need to pay attention please you can skip this part start by finding a quiet and comfortable place where you won't be interrupted take a few deep breaths to calm your mind and center yourself 
visualize a container, like a box or a chest, in front of you. This container represents your emotional space, where you can store and manage your emotions. Begin to identify and name the emotions you are currently feeling. Take a few moments to reflect on these emotions and allow yourself to feel them fully. Imagine placing each emotion into the container. As you do this, try to visualize the emotion as a physical object, such as a color or shape, and imagine it being placed gently inside the container. Once you have placed all your emotions in the container, Take a step back and observe it. Notice how the container now holds your emotions and how you are separate from them. Take a few deep breaths and imagine a calming light surrounding you. This light represents your inner strength and resilience. When you feel ready, imagine taking each emotion out of the container one by one and examining it more closely. Try to observe the emotion without judging it or becoming overwhelmed by it. As you examine each emotion, ask yourself these questions. What triggered this emotion? How does it affect me? Is there anything I can do to change the situation or my response to it? Take a few moments to reflect on your observations and imagine placing the emotion back into the container when you are ready. Finally, imagine closing the lid on the container and taking a step back. Notice how you feel now that you have processed your emotions and have them under control. Now, take a few more deep breaths and thank yourself for taking the time to work on your emotional regulation. You can repeat this exercise as often as you need to help regulate your emotions and process your feelings. Remember to be patient and gentle with yourself as you work through this exercise and take breaks as needed. Does anything else come to your mind that uh, you said that this is the very first and this is big thing to identify and validate to yourself? Uh, what a about then or is this kind of yeah if you just do this it's uh, probably going to work and you don't have to you know uh, think about anything else but or is there any other kind of techniques or steps that you could do take to overcome emotional dysregulation yes oh yes I mean it would be great if the only thing you had to do was validate your emotions <laughs> <laughs> I'd be on um, no, uh, one of the other things, this is going to seem very simplistic, but it is something that, especially when someone's in an abusive relationship, 
um, they tend to neglect, and that is their overall care of themselves. So mental health, particularly regulating your emotions, is connected to how you're taking care of yourself. So if you're not eating healthy, if you are not getting enough sleep, if you're not exercising, if you're uh, taking mood-altering substances, drinking too much alcohol, um, getting involved in compulsive behaviors like spending too much money or um, you know, eating too much or obsessively doing other things, that's going to cause um, it to be more difficult to regulate your emotions. So it's a holistic view. When I, whenever I'm assessing someone or talking to someone about it, I want to know about all those other things. Like, do you get enough sleep? What time do you go to bed? Um, do you eat healthy foods or are you starving yourself? Are you eating McDonald's every day? You know, what are you doing in addition to, um, you know, wanting to work on your mental health? Because mental health and emotional regulation is completely connected to how we take care of ourselves physically. So emotional uh, health and, and physical health go together. And of course, you know, spiritual health and all of that other stuff. Um, so I'm going to assess for the basic needs or you, what are you doing to take care of yourself and encourage people to try to adjust those a little bit because those are connected to whether your emotions are regulated or not. For example, if you are um, having super stressful event go on in your life and you don't get a whole lot of sleep that week, you're probably going to be more irritated you're going to have more anxiety, particularly if you're stressed or you're, you know, more prone to anxiety. Um, and so a lot of times people don't connect those things. And so I want to, I want to know, like, are you getting eight hours of sleep or seven hours or whatever? Are you going to bed at the same time every night, waking up in the morning at the same time ish? Um, because those do have an impact. Are you eating uh, three meals a day or whatever works for you in terms of, of eating, but making sure that you're eating and what are you eating? Um, are you eating uh, everything that comes in a box or are you trying to have, uh, you know, a healthier, more whole foods based diet? Now, granted, these are not things that happen overnight. You know, it takes a little while for people to kind of adjust that. But I have found that a lot of times people don't even connect those things. You know, like, oh, I've been eating like this my whole life. So why should I stop, you know, eating uh, French fries? Well, not that you don't want to stop, that you want to stop eating French fries. It just means look at it from a more holistic place. So that's, that's another thing that I'm going to look for. Personally, improving my self-care routine has been instrumental in managing challenging emotions. It has been particularly effective in preventing me from spiraling into a negative emotional state. To help you do the same, I have created a simple PDF guide on crafting a personalized self-care routine. You can find the link to download this PDF in the podcast notes. I hope it's as helpful for you as it has been for me. Going back kind of to that um, emotional piece is, and the self-talk is increasing positive emotional validation, which means focusing on your positive, positive emotions versus focusing only on the negative emotions. It's very easy in a narcissistic relationship to get wrapped up in all of that negativity, right? Because it's a constant battle of what am I walking into? How, how is this person going to respond? What am I going to do? And so we lose sight of, okay, let me go back to myself and think about the times when I was happy or when I was 
silly or when I was excited about something and try to shift a focus to things that are more positive because they have existed in the person's life. They've just lost sight of them. And so those, it's sort of like a reframing thing. So the emotions are always there, but we're not focusing on them because we've lost sight of them. So if you put a new frame around it and start looking at that, then we can shift that a little bit. And that seems to help. And the, the, again, these are things that people can do at home. You don't have to be at a therapist's office to do it. You can practice all of these things um, just in the you know, sanctity of your own life. Mm, yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, then I think we are ready to move on to the next question. And that is, what are the steps a person who has experienced narcissistic abuse can follow to overcome complex relational trauma? And if you can, again, briefly explain to us what is complex relational trauma? Okay, so um, the, obviously relational trauma comes up a lot when we're dealing with narcissistic abuse. And I mentioned, I think, earlier about the fact that most people, at least that I've experienced and work with, have had relational trauma or some type of trauma earlier in their uh, family or, or life, earlier in their life. Um, so relational trauma occurs in childhood when the person who is supposed to be taking care of you and protecting you and um, creating consistency uh, is neglectful or abusive or there's some severe maltreatment. And so if, if you talk to most people who have experienced narcissistic abuse, they likely have had something like that earlier in their, in their childhood. So the key there is that these uh, abusive situations have to have, to have occurred and been um, committed by somebody who is a family member or a caretaker. So parents, guardians, whoever's taking care of the child. And so complex trauma, that, that additional complex part, is that it happens over and over and over again. So like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is the result of one event. Complex PTSD, is consistent trauma over a period of time. And although they have similar symptoms um, uh, connected to it, the complex trauma includes changes in um, mood and irritability and difficulty concentrating, uh, physical problems, you know, stomach issues, things like that. So people who've experienced this complex relational trauma almost always have complex PTSD. So as they go into adulthood, these individuals with relational trauma will reenact what has happened in their childhood with the person that they get into a relationship with. And this can be an intimate relationship, a friendship relationship, co-worker relationship. It's not specific only to a partner. Um, and essentially what happens is they beeline for the one person that feels familiar to them. And they go into that relationship in the hopes that they can somehow fix all of the things that have happened earlier in their life. This is not conscious. It's a subconscious thing. Um, and so they go into a relationship with someone and essentially reenact everything that's happened to them. And of course, they're going to pick somebody who potentially is abusive. Now, they might, the person may not present exactly like mom, dad, grandma, guardian, whoever it is. 
but it feels similar to them in terms of how they're being treated. And so it's, I'm going to stay here and try to make it work. Mm. That's what it is. Can it happen also, let's say that someone doesn't have like this functional family relationships. I don't know if this is possible, but that someone <laughs> gets into a narcissistic relationship with relatively, you know, uh, healthy family of origin, or at least that there isn't like, like that they are not narcissistic or ne neglectful. Maybe there's some other trauma, but doesn't have to do with the family. Can you get complex relational trauma from the relationship with the narcissist? You can. Um, but I would say that it's very unlikely that the person who comes from a reasonably functional background is going to stay in that for very long. And mm. with narcissistic abuse, one of the things I've seen, and I'm sure you and all the people that you've talked to have, have also mentioned this and, and you've seen it too. People that are in narcissistic relationships stay in them for a really long time. Yeah. So it's not like they meet the person and they're like, Hmm, there's something wrong. I'm out of here. See ya. They stay in it for years and decades and, and, you know, and not, and not like they like it. It's just, they're trying to fix everything. They're trying to change the nurses, that kind of thing. So can somebody get into a relationship with someone who's narcissistic and then have relational trauma with that? They can't and not have had that in their past. It's possible. It's probably not likely. Um, because the, someone who is a reasonably has come from a reasonably functional background is going to meet the narcissistic person and be like, uh, yeah, there's something wrong with you. I'm out. Um, and so they're not likely to stay all that long. They might stay for a few months, um, you know, that kind of thing. In fact, I've had clients like that that have gotten into relationships with people that ended up probably being narcissistic um, and they have been, they're out in less than a year. And their background is is reasonably functional, but that's not the the um, the rule. That's more the exception. Mm, so okay. you know, anything's possible, but it's not probable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, no, one of the other things. I'm sorry. But one of the other things that that um, I've have found with people is sometimes they don't recognize that they've been abused as children because they weren't hit. They weren't sexually assaulted. They, there was no molestation. Um, it was more of a deprivation than an abusive situation. And they may not realize, because again, you're in, when you're in your family of origin, that's all, you know, you have no basis of comparison. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people come in to me and say, Hey, uh, I, everything in my family was great. And then I dig a little deeper and I'm like, yeah, that's not great. Like that's not a functional behavior. Uh, and so sometimes that's one of the things that that shields us from understanding, okay, I have a more of a propensity for being attracted to somebody like this. Mm, yeah, I can totally see that. See that. And uh, then what do you think now that we know about uh, this complex, complex relational trauma, someone is like making a conclusion, okay, this is probably me. What do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, I know that uh, we had discussed a little bit about, um, you know, the 
saying go to therapy, go to therapy, maybe not just always saying that. Um, complex trauma and complex PTSD is a very serious thing. So I always suggest that people do seek out professional help with that. But there are some things you can do to help yourself if that's not feasible for you financially or, or where you're living and that kind of stuff. So there's a few things um, to pay attention to. And one is that every person that I've ever met that has experienced trauma is a survivor. They have somehow survived this. That's a strength. That's not a weakness. And so when you recognize that trauma forces you to go into the survival mode, and we talked to, I think I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago about the fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn, and those survival responses. Those are all primitive survival responses. We all have them. And so when you're in danger, that's when that's going to kick in. And people who've experienced extended abuse tend to go automatically into survival mode. They, you know, it's like autopilot for them, right? So they go in, the, in there. And so as a result, what ends up happening is uh, they, they're, because they're on autopilot, they've got these automatic thoughts that are going on in their head that they default to whenever they're interacting with someone who's a narcissist, which is, I'm terrible, I'm horrible, there's something wrong with me, I'm the problem, I'm the one with the anger issues. And it's almost, it's like a default into that. So they're not paying attention to the fact that survival mechanisms are automatically defaulting you into this place of negativity for yourself. So the key to this is awareness. Okay, so I so someone who is uh, in survival mode recognizes that they're in a narcissistic play or a narcissistic abusive relationship. Um, again, focus backing back on yourself and focusing on the awareness piece of okay, I'm a survivor. I I must have something in me that's a positive good thing, or else I wouldn't have survived this. So I need to work on. Uh, awareness and um, positive feedback whenever my negative stuff is going on, um, I need to switch that to something positive. Again, this is one of those things that is a fake it till you make it thing. Um, when you focus on the negative things that you're saying to yourself, you have to stop yourself and flip that around to something else. Now, a very easy thing to do that anybody can do is to focus on that is to put alarms in your phone of like maybe three times a day where it pops up and it says, okay, check your awareness of what you're saying to yourself, how you're feeling, um, what actions are you engaging in that might be negative that are not are fueling this uh, negativity, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, because people aren't going to spend the whole entire day like, hmm, how am I feeling right now? What's my awareness? So maybe three times a day in your phone um, to start getting into that mindset of rather than focusing on all this stuff out here with a narcissist, which, by the way, you cannot change. Um, you can change how you choose to look at it and whether you're paying attention to, you know, what you're saying about yourself or this situation or um your mindset at that time. So that's one thing that you can do. And it helps to move you from survival to awareness. Mm, mm. Yeah, thank you so much. 
Awareness is the key. Yes. Yes. It, it, you know, when we're talking about that situation where, you know, most people have come from some kind of previous dysfunction, um, you know, children learn defense mechanisms to deal with whatever they're going through, and they bring those defense mechanisms into adulthood without realizing it. And so when you start thinking about, okay, how do I want to get out of this? You have to start looking at, okay, what have I been doing all this time to survive this? Because I need to change that if I want to break this cycle that I'm in. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Thank you. Uh, then we have a question. Can you explain the reason why trauma bonds feel like an addiction and walk me through the steps someone would need to take in order to overcome the addictive component of a trauma bond? So there's neurobiological things that are going on. And one of the neurobiological things um, that happens is endorphins are released when you're in a relationship with an abuser who doesn't act terrible all the time. And that's really the case. You know, with people that are narcissistic, they have this sort of love bombing part that happens in the, the phases of the relationship. And they go back and forth in that, depending on if they feel like they're losing control. And so that love bombing is, is intermittent reinforcement, which intermittent reinforcement is the strongest type of reinforcement that there is. So it is easier to change your behavior in a negative reinforcement environment or a positive reinforcement environment than an intermittent reinforcement environment. And intermittent reinforcement is what I had just mentioned about occasionally this person who you're in the relationship with is not going to be terrible. They might be kind or sweet or nice. And so what happens is uh, the endorphins are released and we, we get a high from it. Even though the high might be very fleeting, it might only be a couple minutes or like a half an hour, or not even that. Um, that sort of traps us in and pulls us back into, okay, I'm going to stick around for this. Maybe this person has finally learned their lesson. Maybe they're changing. Maybe they're going to do this. Maybe they're going to do that. Um, and that's, that's exactly what happens with someone who's an addict or an alcoholic. You know, they, they look for that uh, instant gratification that initially happens when you use the drug and they want to stick around for more. And that's the same pattern happens uh, when you're in a relationship with a narcissist. The only way that you can deal with that process, or the best way, I should say, is to get out of it, to leave. That's the number one way to get out of the addictive pattern. Unfortunately, not everybody can do that, especially if it's like your mom or, you know, you're, uh, you have two little kids with somebody who is narcissistic. You're not going to be leaving and packing up that very day. And, the, and I have found that, that it is a process that, of people getting out of the um, relationship, just like someone breaking up with their drug of alcohol or uh, weed or, you know, opiates or whatever. It's a process that the person has to go through to get to this place of, okay, I'm not going to do, I can't do this anymore. A bottom, if you will. And so the, um, so it's not, you know, people come in and talk to me say, and I say, yeah, you probably need to um, consider leaving that relationship. They're not going to do that initially. 
and maybe not ever, depending on what circumstances are. So if, if leaving is not an option, um, then what you can do is learn about narcissism, learn about trauma bonds, get collect any information that you can. And now there's tons of stuff out there, obviously, including this podcast about how people can learn about this. And when they learn about that, you know, knowledge is power. When they learn about this, they're more able to identify some of these things, these behaviors, these tactics, those kind of things, um, and recognize them when they're happening in that relationship. And when you identify them, then you are better able to adjust yourself or respond in whatever way you choose to respond in. Um, the other thing is documenting all of this information that you have found and all of the behaviors that uh, you are seeing with this person, because there's, there's nothing better than writing a whole list of this crazy stuff that they do. And then going back and looking at it to remind you, you're not the crazy person. Their behavior is crazy. And that's, you know, that kind of, it's a grounding technique when you document things because you know when you're, when you're involved in the gaslighting and the crazy making uh, dialogue and the word salad tactics you're it's kind of like you're floating you know you're like i don't i don't have anything to hold on to but if you've documented a lot of this stuff and you go back and read it when the person isn't there it grounds you back to oh okay now i know what i'm dealing with now i can make decisions about how i want to respond and, and you can do this when you're still with them if you can't leave. As Ellen Beers suggested, documentation is a powerful tool for grounding yourself, especially during the toughest times when a narcissist's chaos, gaslighting and manipulation can make the world feel unsteady. To help you identify the intermittent reinforcement in your relationship and see reality more clearly, I have created a straightforward journaling exercise. This tool will allow you to document your experiences and clear the confusion from intermittent reinforcement. You can find the link to download this PDF exercise in the podcast notes. Then there is like, I have heard many times that, okay, some people who do have decided to leave and have left, but they are still almost like uh, fighting against this trauma bond, but they have done the first step that you said that get get away. Is it like similar to, let's say, an alcoholic or, or drug addict cuts off the drug and is kind of having these, how do you call them, uh, negative side effects, you know, I don't know. And how long do those, like how long do you have to be in this, I don't know, very uncomfortable state of mind after you have left, but you are kind of aware that, okay, this is the trauma bond. I'm still fighting it. When, when does it get better? Well, it gets, it, there's no set time. Um, it depends on sort of the circumstances. So if you're lucky enough, if you want to call it luck, to not have had any kind of like anything that, with that, the narcissist that requires you to continue to talk to them, um, unfortunately, a lot of people have children with narcissistic relationships, and so they still have to parent with them, essentially. Um, though that's going to be much more difficult uh, in terms of timing of how to get out of it. Um, I, I would say, you know, in general, it's a solid year of, you know, dealing with uh, uh, what I call recovery from the abuse. 
um, and recognizing uh, your strengths and focusing on your emotions and healing and those kinds of things. Um, and that depends on how often or, or infrequently you're going to be communicating with a narcissist. Uh, but one major, major thing that helps is boundaries, learning about boundaries, how to protect yourself. Narcissistic people will tell you that when you protect yourself, you are selfish. There's something wrong with you. What are you doing that for? Um, when I talk with the clients and I want everybody to, you know, to uh, look at it this way, boundaries are about you. They're about protecting you. And they hurt sometimes when you're putting them up, you know, because the person gets their feelings hurt or they say something negative back to you, but they're not harmful. And when you're putting a boundary up, although the other person might respond negatively, you're not harming them. You might hurt, quote unquote, their feelings, but you're not going to harm them. And but if you if you go through life with no boundaries, you are going to get harmed over and over and over again. And so boundaries, which is kind of, you know, it's an elusive term because what, what's an emotional boundary? Um, I, the analogy I use is, you know, if someone if you were going to go on to a bus. Um, and you walked onto the bus and you sat down, there's nobody else on the bus. And then the next stop, somebody gets on the bus and there are all these open seats and the person comes and sits on your lap. What are you going to do? You're going to say, Hey, can you get off my lap? So emotional boundaries are the same thing. If something feels emotionally invasive like that, it's okay for you to say, you need to get off my lap to protect yourself emotionally. And so I, I try to get people to look at it from a perspective of, okay, think about how it makes you feel when somebody does something. If it makes you feel bad, then you haven't practiced a boundary. You haven't protected yourself. And it is always okay to protect yourself. Just like I was mentioning with the emotions, your emotions are always okay. Protecting yourself is always okay. And so the boundary thing, and then there's a technique called gray rocking. I'm sure you've probably heard about it before. And gray rocking is a sort of quote unquote communicative way of um, dealing with a narcissist. And you basically become a gray rock. Like you um, limit how much you talk to them. You don't give them any supply. You become the most boring person on the planet because narcissistic people are looking for validation and affirmation and supply and all that sort of thing. And so if you don't give it to them, they're going to move to somebody else. And it doesn't mean you're not going to communicate with them because if you have kids, you have to and all that. But if they don't get anything from you, then they're going on to something else. Because again, the, the thing with the narcissist is the nurse, the stuff that the narcissist does is not about you. It's about them. They don't think about us at all. They think about what we can do for them. And if you can't do something for them, they're out. That's <laughs> so, you know, so again, all this is about learning how to protect yourself and learning how to focus on you in order to be able to deal with um, being in a relationship, whatever that might be with a narcissist. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, I think today we had some very, very great questions and great, great answers. So I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast. And thank you, Ellen, so much for coming to this episode and giving such practical and helpful advice. It was, it's really appreciated. 
Thank you so much for inviting me and it was my pleasure. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.